0: Welcome to Faith this this Lord's Day. We're uh, January. We do a kind of mini series, a four-week series. We've been talking about disciple-making movements, looking at some things in the book of Acts. We're going to wind that up today. Disciple-making movements. You know, years ago, Bill Bowling, who leads worship, sometimes you, you've been around, you know him. He would say that at Faith, that our, that our, our worship is we, we seek to make it like a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven, and what he's what he's talking about is is, is the, the the various blends of types of worship and people from various cultures who come to worship here in faith over through the many years. That uh, hopefully, a taste of heaven. I, I've had relatives have come to our church visiting, and first time they always say, you know, it's almost like the United Nations over there. You know, they're talking about again the various different people that are that are here. And, I mean, look around, you see kind of different shades in the house. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and I say, well, United Nations, uh, that might not be what I hope, we, hope we're better than that. <laughs> Many people think the UN isn't really fulfilling their charter or whatever their charter says about bringing harmony to the world. You know, I, I think that the world dreams of harmony and breaking down of barriers between people who are different from one another. God has a similar vision. God's vision is even greater. That his people, those who trust him, the body of Christ, that we experience, that we, we, having experienced the supernatural love that we just sang about, great is your love, also have a love for one another, a love that helps you to love and trust even normal enemies, people groups that are divided. The unity and the humility that, that's needed for that unity comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says to the world that the gospel is true. The prayer of John 17, it said the world would know. So our vision series, we're talking about disciple-making movements, movements, and we're looking at the fact fact, you're in the book of Acts of the movement of the discipleship that we've seen in these first uh, few chapters. Today, we're gonna focus on the church at Antioch. Um, Disciple-making movements happen best in the context of a church. They can happen outside of the church, but Churches need to be involved, even if it's a parachurch uh, 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 ministry. Um, that disciple-making churches um, should be seeking to produce other disciple-making churches. We'll see that in the book of Acts. We'll see that in today's message. Uh, another thing about disciple-making movements is that um, when, when a church is, is, is a multi-ethnic church, where there's a diversity of people in that church, there's a, a greater potential for mature discipleship that can take place. Because our, your discipleship is not as narrow and not as focused, it's broad, it's, it's, it's touching base with a greater variety of, of, of person and culture and temperament. So there's much to say in the scriptures about, about this, in the book of Acts, and we're just kind of touching on a few things. Today I'm going to do kind of, a, 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 kind of a, a big picture thing as we're going to look at this church of Antioch, the church of Antioch. Um, The passage is that we're going to look at two passages, actually several passages. Acts 11 verses 19 to 26, and then Acts 13 verses 1 to 3, and then we'll look at some other things after that. Um, On your overhead, you see uh, the we'll start at Acts 11, starting at verse 19. Now, before the previous verse, by the way, I hope you have a Bible, the previous verse, verse 18, is, about, is the end of the, the vision that Peter had, where God told him to, to eat the food, though the food had previously been kosher and unclean, and God says, eat it, and twice that story is told. It's a profound story, and Dr. Luke, the human author, wants us to get it so much that he tells it twice, if you read through the book, and then there's a great, great celebration, repentance that leads to life eternal, is for Gentiles, as well as Jews. And then there's a break. And then comes our passage today, starting at verse 19, chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, chapter 13, starting at verse 1. That there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. <clears throat> While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. God bless the reading and hearing of His word. <clears throat> My title is the Antioch Christian Fellowship. The Antioch Christian Fellowship. Now, the world needs to hear and see the gospel. Hear and see the gospel of Christ. It's through churches that are faithful to proclaim and to live out the message of God's love that they will encounter him. And I want to profile this first century multi-ethnic church, the church in Antioch, because I believe Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, unfolds this for us to really get it. It's clear that the Antioch Christian Fellowship began a movement of church planting churches. It's clear. In a divided world like we have, the, the multi-ethnic church has a potential for incredible impact for Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to see God move the center of Christianity to Antioch, this, this church for all the nations, this United Nations kind of a church in order to reach a needy, divided, sinful world. If you, if you look on the map, if you look carefully at maps of, of the ancient world, you notice that there are two Antiochs, there's Antioch and Pisidia, where, where actually Paul and Barnabas went to in, in, in the first missionary journey. And then there's Antioch, Syria. Syria, well, uh, a little bit to the, to the the east of there. And, and Antioch, Syria, Syrian Antioch is the, is the city that we're focusing on uh, in this message. It was the capital of the Roman province of Syria and Phoenicia. It was on a, it was a river city, a port city, the Orontes River. This is an important point. There was a large colony of expatriate Jews, Jewish Jews who were expatriates, immigrants, living there among the predominantly Greek population. So again, it's not in Judea. This is up in Asia Minor area, and um, and yet there are, there's there's a major influx of Jewish worshipers. The J- uh, J- Jewish historian Josephus says um, that at time in Antioch there were there. There were more Jews living there than in any city of the world outside of Judea. So there was a major influx of Jewish people in Antioch. So they had a major synagogue system. The synagogues where the Jewish people would worship when they weren't in in, in the temple area. Um, Ogilvy, in his writing, says a secular city. It was a secular city where, where political intrigue, cults, and sensuality abounded. Cosmopolitan and metropolitan in spirit and size... It was also one of the most corrupt cities of the then-known world. Ritual prostitution in the Temple of Daphne characterized the central orientation of the morals of the city. So it's a cosmopolitan, metropolitan city with all the things that, that unfortunately go on in, in cities like that. Now, today we're gonna, we're gonna, instead of looking at one passage, we're looking look at this, the theme of Antioch, so you gotta stick with me. The f- the first thing want will talk about is the origins of this city, of this church, the origins of the church. We're going to look at primarily Acts 11, but some verses before that. Then we're going to look at the leadership of this church. We'll look at Acts 13 for that. Then we're going to look at the the impact that they had, and we'll look at the missionary journeys. We'll touch on that and talk about some implications for our church. But first, the origins of the Antioch Christian Fellowship. Uh, most of us who know anything about the Bible and, and, and about the New Testament, we think of Antioch, we say, oh yeah, Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. I mean I learned that in Sunday school a few years ago. I mean that, that, that's what we think of we think of Antioch it's where Christians were first given that name no longer were followers of Jesus called followers of the way which is what uh, it seems in the New Testament the first church uh, Christians were called followers of the way Jesus said I'm the way, the truth the life the way it was it was a lifestyle it was a way it was a, it was a teaching following Jesus followers of the way. We see that even in the book of Acts, that, 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 that uh, name for, for, for Christians. But I want to unpack a few things. I want, I want us to to walk to connect a few dots in the first part of Acts before we get to chapter 11. In Acts chapter 2, which was the day of Pentecost when, when, when the Holy Spirit fell, Peter preached a great sermon there. Um, th- th- it says that, the, that the, Pente- the worshipers of Pentecost were from all the different nations of the world, I think it was 13 or 14 of them there. And it says there were some from parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, North Africa, near Libya. They were there. They were Jewish. They were there for the festival of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, there's a great gift given by a man named Barnabas. He's called the son of encouragement, a Levite. He was Jewish, a native of Cyprus. Again, he's one of those diaspora Jews who's in in the Gentile territory, but he's Jewish. He's a Levite. Barnabas introduced to him in chapter six when there's this big issue that happened with the widows and the the the, 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 the Greek widows and the Jewish widows, and the, and the seven are listed as leaders, and one of them is called Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Is our Antioch? Here he is, a is a convert, a proselyte of Antioch. So Luke is kind of giving us a couple things they're gonna the, 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 some pathways that are going to drive us to Acts 11. He's given some hints of some things going on. The, ver- the first verse talks about the scattering because of the persecution that rose from Stephen. That's Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Stephen preached and he was martyred. And who, and who was the one endorsing that martyrdom? It was Saul, Saul of Tarsus, the, the religious Jew, the Pharisee of Pharisees who want to stamp out the faith. And yet, right there in chapter 9, the next chapter, God gets a hold of Saul, (laughs) and he comes to know Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, has that great experience. So all these things earlier in in, in Acts are are moving us towards where we are in this passage today. By the way, in chapter 9, who was it that came along and helped Saul when no one really trusted him except Ananias? It was Barnabas, the same guy that was part of the Jewish Jerusalem. So all these dots are being connected and, 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 and bring us to chapter 11, where he kind of comes to this new section. He says, now those who were scattered because of that persecution. Now, now, the interesting thing is that Luke wants us to know that they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. That was the normal practice. You go and you just kind of connect the people. You, can, you know their language, you know their culture. And it was normal. You would just go and talk to people who you thought would, would hear the gospel. Um, th- th- now again, this is out in Syria, so th- these are Greek or Hellenized Jews, and they're no longer in Judea. Maybe they're back in the land of their origin. Maybe, maybe that's where they have roots, whatever. It is very, very normal for immigrant people to cluster in their own culture. It happens still today. When you when you immigrate to a certain place, you want to f- you, you feel out of you feel like a fish out of water, and you want to find someone else who's a fish out of water. You want to find someone who can speak your language, who can cook the food the way you like it cooked. You, you want to find your culture, right? You know you know what I'm talking about. Well, that's what that that's not new. That's not new. So the, the norm was to go and talk to the people of your own culture, people who had your experience. Verse 20, but. But, you see that? There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, they were Greekified Jews already, so it seems that they were talking to those who were just Hellenists without being Jewish. There's something different happening here. That's why we have the but. They're preaching to these people who have no connection to Judaism. None at all preaching the Lord Jesus. And so, Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Who were they? They were men of Cyprus, Mediterranean, and Cyrene, North Africa. They spoke to Hellenists also. Hellenists, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the, they, they went beyond the normal diaspora synagogue network of relationships. They not, they not only believe that the gospel was for purebred Jews from Judea, it was not only for God-fearers who latched on to the Jewish faith, it was not only for Gentiles of the diaspora Greek, Greekified synagogue system, no. They believe they had the audacity to believe that everybody, everybody Jew or Gentile, barbarian or Greek needed to know about Jesus. Everybody. And so they spoke. And God used them to be a great number, Luke says, into the body of Christ. In verse 21, a great number. They believed, they turned to the Lord. This is unique. This is unique as, as Acts is unfolding. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So again, the mother church, the Jewish leaders, and they sent Barnabas, here's Barnabas, to Antioch. And he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. He ordered them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many, there is a great many, added to the Lord. A great number, a great many, Did you catch that? He saw the grace of God and was glad. We have to have eyes sometimes to see the grace of God, don't we? Sometimes when you look around, you don't see a lot of good things going on, do you? Sometimes you got to step back and pause and pray and say, Lord, help me to see with your eyes what, what, what you're doing here. Sometimes you don't feel like God's doing a lot. Just open your eyes and maybe ask somebody else, do you see what God might be up to here? Though things were different, things were totally new. Barnabas saw it and was encouraged and said, "This is good. This is good." He saw God's grace in what was happening. This new kind of thing that was going on. One author that, I've, that done a lot of great re- writing on this these this pas- these passages is Tom Hopler, University, uh, and, and he says this: In the city of, of Antioch, some evangelized Jews only; some began to evangelize Gentiles as well. If going looking back at chapter 6, if Hellenistic Jewish Christians and Palestinian Jewish Christians had their problems, what will happen when Gentiles start believing in Jesus? And that's really the question as, as Acts is unfolding. There were some issues in, in, in Acts but uh, when, when the Jews and Gentiles, Jew, Jewish, uh, Hebrew, Hellenistic and the Palestinian Jewish Christians uh, were together, and now pure, pure Gentiles not connected to Judaism. Wow, what issues are going to surface at this point? And, and Acts will unfold that. So the apostles in Jerusalem, they hear it and they dispatch Barnabas to check on what's going on. And he's, he's encouraged. He's, he's really encouraged by what he sees. So we have an intentional search by Barnabas. Hopler says this about Barnabas. He was a reconciler. He brought people together. He consoled, encouragement, consoled in the biblical sense of the word. He was also a Levite who spoke Hebrew, living in, in Jerusalem, but was born in Cyprus. So, so, so he understood Greek and Hellenistic peoples. He was bicultural and whose gift was consolation, pulling people together. Now in Antioch, they were Jewish and Gentile believers, some of them from Cyprus, and they needed to learn how to live together. Barnabas was the man to do the job. And later... Opera says, when Barnabas decided he needed help, he did not go to Cyprus. He did not go to Jerusalem. He went north to Tarsus to find another bicultural man. Paul, a Roman citizen, who was also a Pharisee, I mean, a strict, strict religious Jew. Barnabas knew Paul's conversion as well as his background. So there's an intentional searching out. Uh, by Barnabas, who left Antioch to go find Saul a hundred miles away, Tarsus, northwest of, of Antioch. Saul had been there for several years after his conversion, learning, studying, preaching, and teaching, evangelizing around Syria, the nearby province of Cilicia. Barnabas saw this is a great place for Saul to grow and be used by God. Saul had three things. He had the cultural background of a diaspora synagogue, a Jew from Tarsus. Secondly, he had the theological training as a Pharisee under Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He spent many of his formative years in Jerusalem in training. But more than those things, you know what he had? The Damascus Road experience. He, he had a story of what Jesus had done in his life to transform him. He had a testimony. So after describing the unique thing that, that Jesus was doing in Antioch, Luke tells us that these two men taught there for a year, a good year at least, and and then at that point Luke says that they were there first called Christians. This is this new term, this new phrase. Hoppler says this. If you have peaches and pears and put them in the same bowl you have to come up with a new word to describe them. Because you no longer have a bowl of peaches or a bowl of pears. What what do you have when you put them in the same bowl? If you have Jews and Gentiles put them in the same place, you have to come up with a new word, too. You have a phenomena that has to have an identity. So this name, Christian, probably came from outsiders, but it highlights the believer's focus on Jesus Christ. And when they considered, was what, when they considered what was their common ground, they could not find it anywhere except in the fact that both cleaved to Jesus. And this is a powerful message. It's a powerful message to our churches, if we can see blacks, Chinese, Hispanics, whites, northerners, southerners, whatever diversity you have, hang together in the name of Jesus Christ, do we have effective ministry. Antioch Christian Fellowship. The Faith Christian Fellowship has some interesting origins. Um, You've probably seen that photo before. That was uh, the university project that helped launch uh, the church with with Craig. You notice I'm the guy that had hair back then. That's my wife in front of me. But yeah, I was part of the university team, leading that team. And uh, one thing you need to do, it's interesting that, that even from the beginning, the vision that we had for this church was it would not be a homogeneous church, it would not be a monocultural church, it would be cross cultural. In that picture, uh, of the the university team, there are four cultures uh, uh, identified. You can tell there's black and white. There's also an Asian gal, and there's also a gal who is a Messianic Jew. One of the, Terry's friend, Donna. So it was it was a cross cultural team from the beginning. It, it's the kernel of what this church is. There's also someone on the left that you may recognize who read scripture today. But anyway, that's, that's, I won't, I'll leave our let alone. <laughs> multi ethnic churches can only succeed when people are committed to the intentional work that cross cultural relationships demand our staff team on mondays uh, we gather and one thing we've been seeking to do recently is to is to share insights to help us do more and more the work the hard work of reconciliation a few months ago uh, one of us shared a, a brief article by a woman named juliet mayers i think myers mayers it was called um Seven tips to building cross-cultural relationships. If you have, there's a copy of this on the um, at the table out there, but I what I loved about it after we, after we discussed it and I thought about it is the simplicity of it. That you know there's no you don't have to have a Ph.D. to do this stuff. You just got to be stay, stay committed to it. Listen to the seven the seven important tips that she gives. which I think is so great, and she talks about she says first, seek to understand. Don't make assumptions. Again, how do you build cross-cultural relationships? Second. Keep an open mind. Don't avoid stereotypes. She says, start with the ones who you know. Don't say, I'm going to go find a black friend. I'll go find a woman. No. You, you already know some. Begin to know them more, more deeply. Start with who you know. Attend multicultural networking events. We've got one coming February 24th, Carl Ellis. Shameless plug there. But that's, that, that's what that's for to, to equip us to do it better. Get involved, volunteer, partner with groups and organizations where you can add value while interacting and getting to know others from different backgrounds. Plug for the plant, for the learning center. Get to know one individual of a different culture. That that, that begins to help you in your your cultural intelligence and understanding. Uh, Number six, keep your word. Establishing trust is key. And seventh, assume positive intent. In other words, at some point, miscommunication is, miscommunication is gonna occur. So uh, stick at it and assume positive attempt. Um, Juliet Mayer, she's an African-American woman, a black woman's guide to networking. It's a great article, and uh, again, copies if you want to meditate on those. The second thing I want to look at in the passage is, is the leadership. Leadership of the multi-ethnic church, this Antioch Christian Fellowship. This is chapter 13, these few verses there. So very quickly, Paul and Barnabas emerge as two members of a five-man leadership team. That's what they have. And, and that team is listed for us in chapter 13, verse 1. Barnabas, we, we meet him in uh, chapter 4 and previously the, he passages it's native of Cyprus, the Levite. Simeon, who's called Niger, it's a one G, not two, which is Latin for black. He, he was a, a dark-skinned man Many, by the way, connect him with Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus in the Gospels. Church historians connect him with as the father of Alexander and Rufus, who are mentioned in Romans chapter sixteen, verse thirteen. That's history. Um, third, Lucius of Cyrene. Again, Cyrene, um, North Africa, Libya, on the west, North Africa. Um, some think that this was Dr. Luke, Lucius. Most people don't though. It was probably a different person, a different Luke. It was a common name. Fourth man, Manan. He was a lifelong friend and maybe even a relative of Herod the Tetrarch, so Jewish. Raised in that household, the temple palace in Judea, well-connected uh, with a prominent uh, family. Many believe that Luke got some of his, a lot of his information about, uh, historical information about the Jewish um, political and religious realm from Herod, the Tetrarch. And fifthly, Saul of Tarsus. Saul, whose name was transformed to Paul when he got saved. He was now converted. He was a Pharisee, Jew, theologically trained by culture. Paul's been described as a man of little stature, thin hair upon his head, crooked in legs, with eyebrows joining and a nose somewhat hooked. Wasn't much to look at but he was full of grace. Uh, F.F. Bruce says, it appears that while Paul was born into a Jewish family which enjoyed citizen rights in a Greek-speaking city, Aramaic and not Greek was a language in the home. Perhaps also in the synagogue which he attended. Unlike many Jews resident in Anatolia, this family was strictly observant of the Jewish way of life and maintained its link with the home country. Paul would have been given little opportunity of imbibing the culture of Tarsus during his boyhood. Indeed, his parents made sure of an orthodox upbringing for him by arranging for him to spend his formative years in Jerusalem. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about his background, his past. If you remember that passage, he says, I counted all as nothing that I might know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Harper talks about this list, and he says this, Barnabas and Paul are not listed together They're not at the top of the heap, lording it over the other three. They are not at the bottom, as if to say in false humility that they do not have any influence. Great insights there. They are co equal leaders. And so Luke splits them purposely. Again, we see that in the unity of the church at Antioch, it is more than superficial. Each leader probably represented an ethnic contingent. Simeon was black, Lucius was Greek, Manan was Jewish, an African, an Asian, a Palestinian. The Antioch leadership team. And we see some of the the tensions that happened uh, in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul had this conflict, you remember that passage, with Peter over food eating of food in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2. Now, underneath it was a bigger problem than just the issue of food. It was cultural prefaces and cultural practices. as the Gentile church seeking to blast through some of the Jewish understandings of Old Testament practice and Old Testament law. There's more going on there. You know, the Mosaic Network, Mosaic Global Network, is a movement of churches in our day that are seeking to reflect this Antioch vision that we're talking about today. Multi-ethnic churches. They have noticed that since 2001, the percentage of churches has actually increased. Churches are defined as multi-ethnic if tw- if you if you have a uh, 20% of a diverse population. If you have uh, less than 20%, you're not you're you're not a diverse church. You're a homogeneous church. And in in, in 2001, there was only only in America 7.5% of churches were defined that way. It, it, in, in, in their website now they say that, that the number is 14.4% so it's almost doubled uh, since 2001 that's good but there's a long way to go there's a long way to go if that's what the Lord Jesus wants for his church that the church would not just be one people who are all alike sociologically but that the church would reflect diversity because heaven is a diverse place we still folks have a long way to go one of the major barriers to, to, to progress here is the ego of leaders. Pastoral ego. It's said that uh, the, the Catholic Church has one pope, and, and, the, and, and the Protestant Church has millions of popes. <laughs> every, every pastor wants to be the Pope of their own little congregation. And I'm not, I'm not bagging the Catholics there, but that but there's the problem is that pastoral ego is really a problem. I always think about. in in terms of that I think of uh, Michael Jordan you all know who Michael Jordan the great basketball player he's retired now of course Um, his first few years in the the NBA he was clearly the, the best player in the league and yet he never won a championship for several years he just played his heart out but he couldn't win and he started winning when he learned the secret to winning teamwork teamwork His his buddy, Scotty Pippen, who was pretty good himself, and they began to lean on each other. Michael Jordan won when he learned the power of we. And one of the keys to success for the Church of Jesus Christ, especially the multi-ethnic church, is to understand and appreciate the power of we. The power of cross-culturally gifted leaders together, serving together, working together, sharing Christ in that way. And as our nation becomes more and more diverse in the 21st century, churches are now wondering how to how, how do we reach younger people who, who many for decades have been living in a, in a world that's quite diverse and who think that a, that a, that a, a monocultural world is an old world. It's just how today, what, what's that all about? Whether... Live or, or in the virtual world, you know, they're used to diversity, and that's good. In fact, many of them, I believe, have failed to understand the ongoing depth of racial strife and racial tension that still remains in our country until this last few years, and they're shocked by it. They've been surprised to discover that America still has a huge race problem. The challenge for faith Christian fellowship as we seek to be faithful to the Great Commission in our generation is to maintain this vision for a united body of Christ that cuts through the ethnic cultural divisions of our world for one reason and one reason alone. We, we don't do this, we don't have this vision because we perceive it's popular or it's just cool or It'll, it'll, it'll attract certain people. You know, it'll attract some, it'll repel others. No, we embrace this because it's the biblical picture of what God wants his church to be. And the Antioch leadership reflects that diversity, you see, that God wants for his people. Luke highlights this for his friend Theophilus as he writes in Luke Acts to this friend who wants to know whether this Christian message, this Christian faith, has an attraction for those who aren't Jewish from the various nations of the world. The multi-ethnic leadership of Antioch Christian Fellowship. The last thing, as we see here, is through the missionary journeys, is the impact of this church, the impact of Antioch Christian Fellowship, this multi-ethnic church. There's been a principle that that has been in each of the messages, I believe, that I I want you to see, see again. And it's the formula of prayer, empowerment by the Spirit, and then witness. Here it is again. Here we see it in our verses again. They're praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, Set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work. They laid hands on them, and they sent them off to witness. The Spirit challenges them, and He commands them, and they go. He sent them across barriers, going into the regions beyond to proclaim that Jesus is alive. He's the resurrected Lord. And Luke is clear. It is no longer a movement that takes its lead from Jerusalem. The Antioch Christian Fellowship is the new lead church in God's program in the world. That's what Luke wants us to understand. And so the first missionary journey, Paul commences in verses uh, chapters 13 and 14. A couple of things you notice right off the bat. Paul and Barnabas, they usually went to a city and, and started in a synagogue until they got kicked out, <laughs> and they preached to Jews and Gentiles, but they always started at the synagogue. I think of the book, the verse in Romans, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There was something about connecting with people who at least had some understanding of the faith, that Paul and Barnabas did that. I also noticed, very quickly, in the first missionary journey, that initially it's, it, it, it's not it's no longer Barnabas and Paul, but it's Paul and Barnabas. A flip took place. Barnabas Pulled back, Paul became the leader in the first missionary journey. Also, you might, you know, if you read through those chapters, you'll see that the, the, the their strategy seems to be focused on gospel, on, on church planning of gospel-centered churches in key cities of the empire, the Roman Empire. Luke was very selective in which cities he goes into detail. Sometimes he just names a city and he moves on, or lists the city. He's very selective. But the key thing, I think, if you read carefully through these the next few chapters, is that Antioch is the key sending church. It is where they return for rest, for fellowship, and to report what God has done. Acts chapter 14, verse 26 to 28. Acts chapter 18, verse 22 to 23. We all hear of three missionary journeys by Apostle Paul. How do we know there were three? Because he goes to Antioch to rest, and stop, and pause, and fellowship, and get repaired, and then he go out again. Antioch is the key church. Now, in Acts 15, you might remember, there was a conflict. After the first uh, um, missionary journey, there was a major conflict that brewed. What, what are Paul and Barnabas teaching out there? <laughs> are, they, are they teaching people to, to disobey Judaism? And so the big conflict, the Jerusalem Council uh, emerged there, and Antioch, Antioch stood for Christian liberty and the gospel simplicity in contrast to the rigidity of uh, Judean Christianity. Judean, Judean uh, Jewish Christianity. So in the, in the missionary journeys, he, he went to Philippi. These cities: Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and then Ephesus. He spent a long time there, three years in Ephesus. Ephesus almost becomes—it's like Antioch is the key church, but now Ephesus has become a key church as well. He, it's like Paul's is showing a movement of, 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 of Luke is showing a movement of Paul uh, uh, creating these these. Uh, um, headquarters kind of uh, cities for the church. For three years he was there, a major city. And people came from all over the region. And churches were planted because of Paul's three years in Ephesus. Um, they take this thing of multi-ethnic church even more to the next level. In Acts chapter 18, a and Priscilla, a couple, a power couple. They, they, they corrected the, the, the theology, theology of Apollos. They shared a tentmaking making trade with Paul. Clearly, Priscilla was a, was a leader there. Again, Paul's disciple-making of leaders included women. Acts 19. Special attention is made to two key areas of gospel activity at, at Ephesus. Uh, the, a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which was, was a debating place. The world of philosophy and ideas and education. Paul attacked that world. And in the marketplace, the Agora, and there's pictures of the... Of ancient ruins of Ephesus, and uh, this is the world of commerce and trade and business. And and Ephesus was the economic system was turned upside down. It said during the riot, in Ephesus, and the scriptures, and and so the gospel had impact. The gospel does that. We can say more in, in the rest of Acts in chapter twenty, verse four. There's a list of men that Paul gives, who are men from the different cities that he's 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 uh, gone to, and they're they're church planners. He's preparing them to be church planners. In the future, church uh, planters need to be mentored and trained. It's not really theological training. They need to be mentored and and need to have uh, experiences. Just as Jesus gathered men to be with him and to be sent out, so did Paul. In fact, Craig Keener says that Jesus' movement shifts from a predominantly rural movement in Galilee, and he's talking about the Gospels there, to an urban movement in Jerusalem, and he's talking about the first part of Acts there, to a cosmopolitan movement in Antioch. And we can, as we look on, he can talk about moving it from Ephesus to Rome, because chapter 28 is where it ends. The book of Acts ends. In terms of application as we wind down, I saw a great article by um, um Ebony Adadio, um, where she says this. The American church is in decline. Data from all the church growth experts, inclu- including the George Barner group, shows that this is true. In addition, shrinking budgets, consolidated departments, and closed doors also tell the truth that we perhaps have been struggling to hear something that we're doing simply is not working. Over the years, she says, I've seen the American church analyze theory after theory to figure out why this is the case. Is it the... Is it the is the culprit post-modernity? What about lack of community? What about the millennials who seem to show no commitment to what the church is doing? I hope she's a millennial when she says that. <laughs> but we've also taken to following certain trends. Suggested she talks about the emerging church. We've adopted strategies from the business world trying to market what we do better. We've updated our churches with the latest technology. We've built bigger buildings. We've shortened our services. We've we've created in-house coffee shops. We've hired professional musicians. We've opted for for less awkward forms of greeting visitors, all in an attempt to appeal to those who are not coming in. But for the most part, we're the only ones that are amused. And, And she says, the latest of all the trends appears to be diversity. Jesus, for for years, hundreds of years, in fact, whites have gone through great lengths to tell people of color that we are not wanted in their places of worship. They didn't want to eat communion with us. They didn't want to fellowship with us. They certainly didn't want to be be led by us. In fact, they literally killed cross-cultural movements of the Holy Spirit where people of color were in charge. And so, begrudgingly, We started our own. We started our own congregations and denominations, places where we are able to grow, encourage one another, and meet each other's needs. We did it separately from white folk and separate. We have largely remained, but over the years, a small choir of folks developed who understood the importance of doing church differently. Long before census data showed that our country's demographics were changing, and perhaps even before there there, there was any measurable decline in the church, these folks started to call for diversity and reconciliation in the body. I can't read that paragraph. I think about Craig and Maria in the early 80s when nobody was thinking about churches like this. And she goes on. You know, as Craig and I move on to our latter years of ministry, you've probably heard that we're thinking about a a ministry called BALM, creating a ministry called BALM, Baltimore, Antioch, leadership movement. Helping churches to to embrace and understand this whole thing that I've been preaching about today, and to see that it's not something that's that's, uh, an option, that God wants churches to reflect. What heaven reflects—that when people want to see harmony and peace and lack of hostility between people who are different, they shouldn't have to go to the United Nations. Please, they shouldn't have to go to the United Nations. They need to go to the local church and see people who are different, divided, who have who with different histories and cultures and backgrounds and even languages, but because of the being united in Jesus Christ, working it out working out what it means to be the body of Christ. Folks, that's where we're headed if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. You've headed to that kind of experience with people who are not like you. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. John said, After this I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. And ever. And Jesus exhorted us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. May we, Faith Christian Fellowship, see this model of the Antioch Christian Fellowship and continue to work it out and become a more and more church that wants to see other churches become this biblical model of the Antioch Christian Fellowship. Let's pray. Well, there's a lot of information here, but I pray you would grip us with the simplicity of the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people. And we can come to Jesus Christ just as we are, not having to conform to any cultural patterns that are out there. May we be a church that that is more welcoming, even as we are one that is welcoming. May we continue to grow in this way. And may, may we as individuals learn what it means to be part of a church like this, that it means that, that we haven't arrived, that we're still working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as you said in your word, that we do all we can to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and that each day we walk in repentance because of the, the mistakes we make in our relationships, and that we can do that because on the throne is a lamb who died for us that we might be free. But make this this word really count in our life now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. And our closing song. Holy, holy.